is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're Hey guys, welcome back. Howdy. Hi. I I believe we call this program the Curbsiders. And uh, what do we curbside? Well, uh, usually an expert, and uh, I think we should introduce ourselves first. So I'm oh, yeah. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with two wonderful co-hosts. Dr. Stuart Ken Brigham is the one interrupting me. That's me. <laughs> And and everyone's favorite, the great Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, who I believe will be telling you what this show is about. Thank you, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We, as you know at this point, um, do talk to our guests about their life and things that they do to maintain work-life integration. At the beginning of the podcast, um, we now know scientifically that 12% of you skip past this point. So. Yeah. 12% of you are, are missing out and are lesser humans. Let's try to make that 11%. <laughs> so for, for you guys, you know at this point, go ahead and go to the show notes. Pick the timestamp where we actually start uh, the meat of the episode. Go to town. That's a bad combination. Um, for the remaining <laughs> tasteful and thoughtful 88% of you, thank you. Welcome. Uh, and now on with the show. Of course, on this episode, we're going to talk all about both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. We talk about how to diagnose it, what's the differential diagnosis, the common therapies, some of the things that we should look out for in primary care, and some of the health maintenance stuff, vaccinations, osteoporosis, things like that. That's at the end of the show. So our guest is a returning guest. Uh, You can go back and listen to episode number nine, which is on uh, fecal transplants, This is Dr. Adam Ehrlich. He went to Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where he earned an MD and MPH. He later completed a residency in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital before entering a fellowship in gastroenterology at Temple University Hospital, where he is now an assistant professor of medicine, associate program director of the gastroenterology fellowship program, co-medical director of the inflammatory bowel disease program, and director of the fecal microbiota Transplant transplant program. Oh, almost all the way through. Almost, that was, I almost uh, made it, Paul. So, as you can tell, he is more than qualified to talk to us about IBD, and uh, this discussion is an absolute joy. Uh, if you want to take it in two parts, I imagine somewhere around forty-five minutes is where we finish <laughs> talking about Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and we talk about Crohn's disease for 30 or 40 minutes, and then the last 10 minutes is uh, us talking about the primary care stuff in IBD. So without further ado, here's our discussion with Dr. Adam Ehrlich. I don't have anything. IBD on. (laughs) That was less horrific than I imagined it was going to be, so I think we should let that one stand. (laughs) Well, Adam, thanks. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. And it's been, what, like 110, 20 episodes since we've had you on the show? Uh, from my perspective, three kids ago. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been Wait, a while. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, I've had three kids since the last time we were Were there twins in there so or are you just like at a rapid fire pace here? The show's <laughs> only about three years old. <laughs> that's... Uh, well, 
Okay, maybe I had one I don't remember. I don't know. I was listening to a different house at the time. <laughs> wow, that's I'm I'm literally shocked. I'm sitting here shocked. <laughs> okay, so for the audience who didn't hear your first episode, first thing they should do is go back and listen to our episode on on fecal transplants because it was it was a good one. And then the second thing, can you give them a one-liner about yourself just to let them know who you are and include something about what you do outside the world of medicine? Yeah, sure. So uh, 36-year-old guy, um, gastroenterologist, father of three little girls uh, who likes watching HGTV uh, and uh, is a big Philadelphia sports fan. So go Eagles. Yes, big game next week. That's dating this episode, which will come out after the Eagles have most certainly lost in the playoffs. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we got a good one the other day, so, you know, it's okay. Yes. Okay, Paul, did you have a question for your colleague? Oh, sure. I I think, why don't we turn around? I feel like I I normally ask about a book, but this time, why don't I ask about a movie you've recently enjoyed, Adam? Um, Okay, so the last time I was in the movie theater was before my kids were born six years ago. Um, But uh, I recently saw RBG. Uh, the documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it was awesome. Uh, besides the fact that uh, it's amazing what she's done, sort of pre-Supreme Court, um, her uh, vigor and uh, and enthusiasm is uh, amazing, and hopefully she's doing well health-wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone say a small prayer. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, she's the type of person that fills me with shame. I almost don't want to watch it just because I don't want to feel that bad about myself and how little I've accomplished and how terrible shape I'm in compared to this. How old is she now? 85 year old woman. Yeah. She, she is absolutely adorable in this movie. She walks, she walks around and teeters around and her, her granddaughter calls her Bubby and it's just adorable. So what's the best advice that, that you've ever received in your role as a mentor, a teacher or a physician? So I think I'm going to talk about sort of career stuff. And that is that, you are not going to get anything if you don't ask for it. And, you know, I'm thinking specifically about sort of contract negotiations, but I think that applies to sort of all aspects of what we do. And, um, you know, thinking about what you want to do in your life, if you don't sort of pursue and be clear about the things that uh, make you passionate, you know, running a podcast, uh, you know, being an educator, um, you know, uh, doing, you know, whatever research project, um, people are not going to give you the, the time to do that. They're going to just make you see more patients. And then on the flip side, you can always say, well, I got what I asked for. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> Real monkey's paw situation. <laughs> we did, we have talked about that a lot on the show. I, I think the way that I summarize it is basically that you, I think everybody should try to have a career that does, didn't exist before they did it. You know, they, they basically, right. they, they create such a unique job that they're the only ones that could do it. I think that's <laughs> yeah. got to make you happy, at least happier than if you got the same job everyone else has. Yeah. And think outside the box. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, we have a big topic. Uh, so uh, I, I probably will abstain from a pick of the week tonight, but Paul, did you have one? It's a movie, I bet. Oh, I always have one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we could just edit it out later if we don't have time for it, if we end up going three hours long. Um, but I, <laughs> I just, I, I will date this a little bit further if anyone actually pays attention. I just tweeted about this movie because I just, I feel like it is one of the most criminally underrated movies of the past decade. But I was just, it just happened to come on TV last night. And I just remembered what an amazing movie it is. It's Edge of Tomorrow, the, uh, the Doug Lyman science fiction movie that is terribly named, horribly marketed, and then not surprisingly didn't do great in box office. 
That's the live, die, repeat one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually liked that one a lot. It was like it was like Groundhog Day, but you know, but uh, with uh, about interesting sci-fi stuff. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's Although I, and I it's love funny. Tom yeah. Cruise I, I, is, I think, I, come at me, bros. I think one of our greatest actors. Like <laughs> I think he's the Cary Grant of our generation. Like he yeah. just sort of sacrifices himself on the altar of entertainment with every movie. He's like just beats himself to death. So I, <laughs> I think he's amazing in it. And Emily Blunt's fantastic. The plot is great. It is a ton of fun. Um, so if you're into science fiction and you like, um, and you like great great movies that no one has actually watched, uh, just wait for it to float by on TBS and watch I it because it's a fantastic. I thought movie, it was a so. pretty uh, popular movie, was it not? I, I think considering Maybe you just didn't how go much the it was theater? invested in it and being having Tom Cruise, it didn't do as well as was expected. So probably uh-huh. recouped. Um, so don't cry for Tom Cruise, but still watch the movie. Okay, Paul. As I said, I'm not going to give a pick of the week. It sounds like Stuart doesn't have one either. So why don't you get us started on this topic? Yeah, as, as we've discussed before, this is a topic I'm excited about because I don't know a whole lot about it. I feel like it's this this huge disease process that I don't have a whole ton of exposure to. And so, and then also I'm a huge fan of Adam. So you put those two things together and this made a lot of sense. <laughs> so we're talking about inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, and I think even before we get to the case, it might be helpful just to define our terms. And, and Adam, I want to start just by asking you what disease states sort of fall under this umbrella term inflammatory bowel disease. Sure. So we're generally talking about two things. We're talking about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And um, we can sort of think of it a lot of times as a spectrum. And there's sort of Crohn's at one end and ulcerative colitis at the other. And oftentimes there are some features that, you know, sort of overlap a little bit. Oftentimes that gets the term indeterminate colitis, which we can find in about 10 or 15% of people. Um, But, you know, you can have a colitis patient that has a few features that might think you're Crohn's and a uh, Crohn's patient that might have a few features of, of colitis. But we generally try to sort of decide on one of those two things in these patients. And along the spectrum, do we, and I know the answer is there's a lot of stuff that does this, <laughs> but is there a sort of a shared path of physiology of all the inflammatory bowel diseases? Why do they share this umbrella? What is it about them that they actually end up being categorized as sort of the, the same uh, broad disease process? Yeah, so I think the sort of major pathophysiologic mechanism is an immune dysregulation, and we don't have to get into sort of all the nitty-gritty cytokine-related things, but um, uh, needless to say, immune dysregulation occurs, causes an inflammatory process in the GI tract. In ulcerative colitis, it's confined to the colon. In Crohn's disease, it can be sort of anywhere in the GI tract, um, and that inflammation causes a whole lot of symptoms, which I'm sure we'll get into shortly. Um We know there are some risk factors like certain genetic profiles, uh, probably some aspects of the microbiome, and uh, certainly some environmental factors. Okay. So it sounds like, um, I think to put it scientifically, a lot of stuff. (laughs) Or scientifically, we don't really know what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I feel like that's that's a good starting point. So why don't don't we start with our first case and kind of use that as, as the framework for our discussion as per usual. Um, so let's talk about Mr. Robert Owens. He's a 25-year-old patient. He's presenting to you with a two-week history of blood in his stool. It started initially with loose stools, then this has progressed over time to include frank blood and a, a bit of mucus as well. He says he has some bowel urgency, um, but without frank incontinence, and he's been without any kind of abdominal cramps. He also has some vague systemic symptoms. He feels fatigued. He feels like maybe he has some joints aching. He can't really uh, pinpoint one or two. It's just kind of all over. He's been without fevers and chills. He's not traveled anyplace exotic. He's not eating any new foods at all. 
Not a smoker and doesn't really mention any other noteworthy medical history. Not really sure so much about his family history. He thinks maybe his dad maybe had some kind of a bowel problem, but doesn't know much more than that and says his mom's healthy. So, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier. I feel like a lot of, at least in primary care specifically, we see a lot of presentations of sort of a constellation of vague gastrointestinal symptoms. So for this type of case, what's your initial approach? Sure. So there are a few sort of buzzwords in your case that raise my suspicion for inflammatory bowel disease. Um, the guy's healthy otherwise, um, and he's young. So there are not a lot of things that can cause this sort of constellation of symptoms in a young 25-year-old kid. Um, the time course is the one thing that sort of potentially turns me off of IBD because we think of IBD as a chronic disease. Now, Obviously, it's got to start sometime. Right. Uh, so, you know, th this guy lucked out. We got a cancellation because I never see someone <laughs> after two weeks of symptoms. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if, if this case was six months of symptoms, I mean, this would be IBD unless proven otherwise. Um, the other sort of major category of diseases I would think about in someone like this is an infectious etiology. Um, you know, a few weeks of, of diarrhea with blood, you're thinking about some, one of the sort of, you know, invasive pathogens, E. coli, um, Campylobacter, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. The father maybe has a bowel problem. We do have some uh, uh, relationship to genetics. Uh, parents um, with IBD can impart a risk of, uh, of IBD to their children. Um, so I would think about that as well. But, you know, sort of the run-of-the-mill GI problems we think about, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and and um, functional diarrhea and functional constipation and all of those sorts of things really don't fit here. Um, the bleeding makes you concerned. Um, and uh, and the, the symptom that really puts me, pushes me towards colitis is the, the urgency. And, and we would sort of try to hmm get into a lat a little bit more and see if he's really having what we would call tenesmus. And uh, tenesmus is really makes us think about a rectal inflammation, which we would see in colitis. And obviously you can have that in certain infectious etiologies too. Um, but, uh, you know, a feeling where I got to get to the bathroom. If I don't get to the bathroom, I'm going to have an accident. And then you get to the toilet and not a whole lot comes out. You get um, maybe a little blood or mucus, maybe a little stool, but certainly the output doesn't fit with the feeling of needing to have an output. Yeah. Uh, so that's what that's, that's the B uh, would be, I would think about, you know, w one thing that I recall reading was that um, an urge to defecate in the middle of the night is strongly associated with IBD. Is this something you've heard before? Like if you get up from a, a deep sleep and you have to go use a restroom. So I would say that that feeling is a symptom of a, an organic pathology. So I'm not necessarily IBD, um, but typically we do not see patients with irritable bowel syndrome having to get up in the middle of the night. Really? So you can imagine if you had uh, an invasive pathogen causing your diarrhea, mm, you know, okay. it doesn't know whether you're awake or asleep or whatever, <laughs> right? You know, so so it's gonna it's gonna cause symptoms in the middle of the night. But irritable bowel syndrome does not. Okay. And, and if you think irritable bowel syndrome, but otherwise uh, your history fits that, and you hear about waking up in the middle of the night, okay. that might raise your suspicion. Okay, that's probably what, what are, where I read it. You mentioned tenesmus and sort of this feeling of urgency without sort of a result commensurate to the urgency. We, you mentioned some nocturnal symptoms. Any other historical points that at this point would be really critical for you to elicit after this initial presentation? 
Um, you know, the, the, it's a short time course. It's only, we're only talking about two weeks. Um, if this was a more chronic diarrhea, we would be thinking also about weight loss. Um, uh, you know, not necessarily because, you know, IBD itself causes weight loss, but if you feel crappy and you go into the bathroom a lot, you're not necessarily (laughs) going to eat as much. Um, um, and, and especially thinking, you know, if we're thinking about colitis, if the colon is inflamed, that shouldn't really affect your absorptive pattern. Uh, Crohn's disease will do that much more. Um, so it's just a, a lack of desire because, you know, concern about running to the bathroom. Um, you mention uh, a smoking history or a lack of smoking history in this case. If you wanted to really design a perfect board question, you would talk about a patient who just recently stopped smoking. Uh, and for reasons that we don't fully understand, ulcerative colitis tends to come on um, in patients who have stopped smoking. Um, there's a, it's a higher percentage of uh, incidence in those folks than those who either have never smoked or are um, are currently smoking. And some patients actually report feeling better when they smoke. Um, not that we recommend that, but um, <laughs> it uh, there is this association. I remember that being the one... One thing yeah. that like one time in medical school where they said like maybe smoking has a health, you know, a health benefit, but it's, you hate to even call it a benefit because it's poisoning them in so many other ways. But I, re- I recall a bunch of step one, two and three questions that differentiated ulcerative colitis versus Crohn's by uh, smoking or not smoking. Because, yeah, whether that's true or not, I don't know. For Crohn's. It's probably safe to say that's the most important historical point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just want to be clear, though, if if. If they, is it if they were smoking and then they stop, that's where it seems to be a problem. It's not like, you know, they should take, um, if like people who are never smokers are more likely to get colitis than people who are smokers. Yeah. I, so I don't know a hundred percent about that, but definitely the sort of typical scenario would be someone who was smoking and stopped. And for some reason, the withdrawal of something in the in the cigarette so whether it's nicotine or or something um uh sort of triggers that is that initial trigger that uh that causes the inflammatory response and and there have been some studies that i'm not overly familiar with um regarding actually using nicotine replacement therapy and things for ulcerative colitis you know getting the benefit i guess of the nicotine without all the crap in the cigarette uh but um i don't think they've been particularly effective it's probably because it's all the other crap in the cigarette that's yeah. like <laughs> that's doing something to to keep it at bay. Pleiotropic effect of cigarettes. Sure. <laughs> I love that. That's where this show has gone. Adam, I'm going to put you to ask you to put on the primary care hat um, sure. for just a hot minute. So before this patient would even make it to you and say they present to a primary care office, what what should the initial workup look like? So since Robbie's not going to jump right to endoscopy, um, having either the the <laughs> the capacity or the intelligence. Um, what should uh, an internist start with for somebody who presents like this? Yeah, so I mean, I think you know you're always concerned about infectious, as we as we spoke about. So a basic infectious panel, uh, you know, stool studies um, are worthwhile, especially C diff. So C diff is highly associated with ulcerative colitis, um, and certainly if you're suspicious for ulcerative colitis or you know already about ulcerative colitis, um, about twenty five percent of um, of ulcerative colitis patients can flare with C. diff in the outpatient setting without having had the typical antibiotic exposure, hospitalization. Um, so C. diff is uh, something we would think about. And obviously, in this case, 
you know, a, just a few week history of uh, symptoms, we'd think about, you know, the E. coli's and things like that. So stool studies would be useful. Um, presuming those things are negative, um, you know, my initial workup, if I, if has not been already done, includes inflammatory markers. Um, so uh, ESR and CRP, um, CRP is the more useful marker and tends to be a better tends to be better used in colitis than Crohn's. Um, sort of the classic teaching is not every patient exhibits uh, an elevated CRP, but if they do, then it can be a good marker for you to follow over the long term. Um, the, there's a group of patients that don't mount uh, of much of a CRP, and then it's not very useful, obviously, uh, to sort of you know mark flares. Something we are doing a lot more of in the last few years are stool tests of inflammation. So either a, a fecal calprotectin or a fecal lactoferrin are um, are useful um, in that they can show you not just sort of systemic, you know, nonspecific inflammation, but a uh, more focused GI tract inflammation. Um, and that can be useful in two ways. Number one, for the initial diagnosis. So there's reasonable evidence that uh, certainly for colitis, if you have a negative fecal calprotectin, um, it's a reasonably good, uh, uh, as far as sensitivity and specificity to rule out, um, uh, ulcerative colitis. Um, sometimes we'll do that if we have some sort of findings suspicious for, uh, irritable bowel syndrome versus inflammatory bowel disease. And we want to try to help distinguish or make a, help us decide, should we be doing a colonoscopy in this person? Um, mm. if their if their fecal calprotectin is totally normal and their other symptoms are sort of vague and nonspecific, you might hold off. Um, and if it's, if it's positive, that might push you to do the colonoscopy. I will give one caution though. It's not always covered by insurance. Um, and, uh, you hate to get, you know, a patient with a $250 bill or so for a fecal calprotectin. I, I actually haven't ordered the test. I was trying to read a little bit about today. It sounds like it's found inside uh, neutrophils and monocytes. So it's kind of a marker of those cells being in the stool. And Correct. So it's sort of just like in, if, if, you're, if you're between um, functional, like a functional GI disorder and inflammatory bowel disease and that's elevated, it would move you away from like a functional disorder. Yeah, exactly right. And, and it's, it's, it's more, it's a better test than fecal leukocytes. If you guys have ever ordered fecal leukocytes there, it is always negative. Um, maybe twice in my career has it been positive. <laughs> um, but, uh, the, the calprotectin protein is something that, uh, that we can pick up a, a lot easier. Mm. Um, I will say, uh, if you're going to do a colonoscopy anyway, don't do a fecal calprotectin, right. you know, because yeah. it's it, if it's going to help you push. Now, now, if you once you make the diagnosis, it may be useful to have the value to sort of trend over time. But as far as making the diagnosis, if you've already decided for yourself that you need a colonoscopy, the test doesn't change anything, so it's not worth doing. Now, it's also positive in infectious etiologies, correct? Any inflammation in the in the colon. So yes, infectious etiologies would make it positive. But if you did stool studies that were negative here and you got a fecal calprotectin that was positive, that would uh, point you in the direction of IBD. Yeah. All right. And just so that I'm understanding, Adam, and I'm, I'm sorry for being a little bit dense about this, but in terms of with the ESR and the CRP, it sounds like they're useful for tracking disease flares sort of once the diagnosis is made. Can you just go back and through and tell me how if they're helpful diagnostically at all? And which one to order? Yeah. Yeah, I, so I would say it's sort of similar to the fecal calprotectin, but it's just a little bit less 
specific. So if you have a totally normal CRP and you're already thinking that it's irritable bowel, functional GI disease, that sort of helps confirm your thought process. If you think the patient has irritable bowel syndrome and you get a CRP that's quite elevated and you don't have another obvious reason, you know, they don't have a rheumatologic disorder, a pneumonia, uh, you name the cause of possible high CRP, um, then that's going to make you think of um, uh, something in the GI tract and, and potentially IBD. Okay, that's helpful. Thanks. So we're, we're kind of getting there. So positive fecal calprotectin, high high inflammatory markers in a good story. This person's going for colonoscopy. How soon do patients usually get get endoscopy when they're suspected to have IBD? And, and when should we be referring for that? Yeah, I mean, look, as a, as a PCP, if you're having a patient complain to you about rectal bleeding and bloody diarrhea, they're coming to see me. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, unless, unless it's a, you know, two or three day isolated incidents, never happened before, hasn't happened since that you might hold off and say it was something infectious. Um, or if it's a little bit of blood on the toilet paper that you're pretty confident is hemorrhoids. You know, I see, I see all of those patients. Um, my de- decision making, fa- uh, point is, um, how quickly do I have to get in? How sick are they? So this guy seems like he has reasonably mild symptoms as far as things go. Um, you know, the people who are complaining of 20 bowel movements a day, febrile, lost 20 pounds, severe abdominal pain, you know, that we're thinking about hospitalizing them. Um, they obviously need something urgently because you're worried about things like toxic megacolon. Let's move on with the case. Let's say that Mr. Owens undergoes colonoscopy. He's found to have uniformly inflamed mucosa from the anorectal verge that extends all the way proximally to the sigmoid colon with some evidence of micro micro ulcerations. Can you kind of just tell us in general, like what buzzwords should we know in in primary care for for somebody um, when when we're reading these histology reports or the colonoscopy reports? Sure. So, um, so we're specifically thinking about ulcerative colitis in this guy, and we can talk about Crohn's a little bit later. So, um, for ulcerative colitis, you are talking about continuous inflammation, including the rectum, and going some amount. Uh, proximal. So you can have ulcerative proctitis where just the rectum is involved, ulcerative proctosigmoiditis, you know, which is rectum and, and sigmoid, left-sided colitis, which includes the descending colon, or anything that includes more proximal to the splenic flexure would be considered pancolitis. Um, so those are the terms you might see as far as sort of how much of the colon is inflamed. Um, the description you've sort of hit right on the nose sort of uniformly inflamed. You can have um, erythema, friability, ulcerations. We have some scoring systems endoscopically um, to sort of grade severity. The one we use most is uh, from the Mayo Clinic, so it's called the Mayo score. Um, uh, it's graded zero to three, not necessarily required for uh, for PCPs, but three is bad and one is less bad. Um <laughs> Thank uh, you for framing that in terms if, I might understand. Yeah, exactly. So, so if um, if you're thinking about uh, if you're looking at the pathology report, you're you're looking at acute. Uh, you know, usually it says acute and chronic inflammation, and uh, the sort of buzzword for pathology is evidence of architectural distortion. So, any kind of inflammatory process, you know, infectious can have cryptitis or crypt abscesses, but the architectural distortion is the 
hallmark of inflammatory bowel disease, both both UC and Crohn's. Um, in this particular guy, if he's really only had symptoms for a few weeks, it is possible you might not get that. And so if, uh, you know, probably he's had some inflammation ongoing before that, but I wouldn't exclude ulcerative colitis if everything else fit. It looked like ulcerative colitis, but the biopsies weren't quite perfect um, because it's been such a short time period. So we spent a lot of time uh, on the gastrointestinal symptoms that kind of go along with this. I mean, obviously, um, but the patient came in also reporting um, some arthralgias and then also some systemic symptoms like fatigue. And I feel like this is also, frankly, sort of high yield board stuff, too. Can you talk us through some of the, the more common extraintestinal manifestations you see with UC? Yeah, sure. So um, inflammatory bowel disease has sort of three major non-GI systems that get affected, and they're things that I ask about uh, with my IBD patients at every visit. I ask about joints, I ask about skin, and I ask about eyes. And um, there are a few other things. So, you know, UC can be associated with primary sclerosis and cholangitis of the liver, um, but, uh, but those are the three major ones. So as far as uh, skin goes, so the two classic findings, um, erythema nodosum, those sort of tender nodules uh, typically on the shins um, that can happen in disease flares. And uh, also uh, pyoderma gangrenosum, which uh, looks like sort of ulcerated um, skin tissue, almost necrotic, that uh, sort of does not parallel disease activity. You can get it even if your uh, disease is under um, uh, in remission. Uh, if you Google some pictures, if you want, it looks really nasty. Yeah, it's pretty uh, bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for as far as uh, joints go, um, there's sort of these vague um, uh, polyarthralgias that you can get that, that tend to um, mimic or, or go along with disease activity. Uh, and then you can have things like ankylosing spondylitis, which is HLA B27 related um, and can happen whether you have active disease or not. Uh, and then as far as uh, ophthalmologic uh, problems, you can have uh, sort of an episcleritis um, sort of redness of the eye that happens along with disease activity. And the more severe complication uh, would be uveitis, which is uh, generally does not parallel activity. You can get it even when disease is, uh, is in remission. For these, is there, you mentioned multiple things that can happen with, even when the d disease is in remission. So the, so there's no, just no way to prevent those. It's just bad luck for the patient if they, if they have those. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, you're obviously going to be treating their underlying GI disease and probably to some effect it, those, those medications help because we're suppressing whatever immune response there is, but yeah, you can get it sort of, uh, either way. And, and the way I sort of remember it is the more severe complication for each of those organ systems is the one that tends to not be related to disease activity. Would PBC be included in that as well? Primary, you said, is it primary biliary cirrhosis? I always get them mixed up. No, so primary sclerosis and cholangitis, PSC, is um, is associated with inflammatory bowel disease and does not. I wouldn't categorize that in the same sort of realm. Um, PSC is more common in ulcerative colitis than Crohn's disease, and it's one of those things where if you have PSC very high likelihood you also have concomitant IBD, but if you have IBD, you may not have PSC. 
Um, mm-hmm. so, so much so that if you were to get diagnosed with PSC, one of the first things you do as part of the management is you do a colonoscopy, um, even if they're not having a lot of GI symptoms, because you can pick up a lot of sort of smoldering or indolent inflammatory bowel disease that the patient has not really presented with yet. Yeah, so, so we had PSC with IBD. What about PG? I don't know that anyone followed that. <laughs> the pyodermic gangrenosum. <laughs> we're, I thought we are talking in acronyms, guys. Come on. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I mean, so that's, th- does that also follow the disease activity, or can that also occur when it's quiescent? So, uh, pyodermic gangrenosum is generally thought of as not necessarily following disease activity. Okay, that was a quick answer. Let's say we have somebody with with uh, ulcerative colitis. This young guy, he's twenty five. He just wants to know, like, how long is this going to be a problem for me? Is my life going to be shortened by this? Hmm. How do you counsel this person when they first get diagnosed? I talk with these patients for a while and I'll often, after I make the diagnosis sort of explain some of the, some of the nitty gritty stuff, I'll have them come back a few weeks later after they've thought about it. Um, because I tell them that this is a lifelong disease. We unfortunately do not currently have a cure, uh, but we have a lot of good treatments and the goal, uh, in every, any patient is to get you back to a normal quality of life. And in most patients, we're able to do that or come pretty close. Um, as far as life expectancy, uh, in general, IBD patients have similar life expectancy to the average population. Um, they do have risks for certain things that might shorten your life expectancy, the big one being uh, colon cancer. Uh, you're at increased risk of colon cancer, and obviously, if you get that, um, uh, could be uh, life-threatening. Um, but the Treatments we have, uh, I think, are reducing the risks of, uh, of colon cancer in the long term. And with good surveillance uh, programs, we can often catch things early uh, that it's not causing a major problem. How, how often can this gentleman expect to have flares? How long does remission last once it happens? And what kind of what does that look like? The, I guess the natural history with our current medications we have to offer. Yeah. So if you look at the natural history, you know, without, you know, talking about the nitty gritties about which medications at this moment with this patient, I have no idea. Uh, there are patients that their initial presentation is the worst they ever have it. And then they get into remission and they never have problems or they, you know, they, they, they rarely, rarely have problems. There are patients who get their symptoms. We get them into remission, but they continually have periods of flare and remission, you know, you know, maybe every six months, every year, every two years over the course of their lives. And then the, the last thing is this can happen, but it's unusual for patients to have a fairly mild flare early on and then you know, get progressively worse and worse and worse over time. More often than not, you know, you're sort of your worst at the beginning part of your disease, at least for colitis. Mm-hmm. And then, it, then it sort of just tapers off or becomes less frequent or less severe with the subsequent flares. Is that, does it ever like, I, cause I feel like when I was working in a geriatrics clinic in Texas, I, I had a couple patients in my panel that had ulcerative colitis listed and they were like 60 or 70, maybe even older, and they, they hadn't had anything happen for like a decade plus. And I don't know if that's kind of typical or if they were just outliers. 
I wouldn't say it's typical, but it's certainly not unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I also have a number of patients who are older and they have, they carry ulcerative colitis on their, on their problem list. And they're even on, you know, uh, a mesalamine product or something, uh, to keep things in remission. But they tell me that they haven't had problems in years. I'll scope them. They do have architectural distortion. So I do believe that the diagnosis is correct and they weren't just given it, you know, 40 years ago when no one knew it was going on. And, um, and yet they haven't had problems in a long time. So so that definitely happens. And we have absolutely no way of predicting who those people are going to be. Um, we are working on a lot of predictive models, uh, both sort of clinical parameters as well as a bunch of genetic tests that will hopefully give us a better sense of who the patients are that are going to have rockier courses and who the patients are that are going to have more uh, indolent courses. Um, and we have some sort of vague guidelines at this point, but, uh, but not good answers. So, you know, the things that would make me think someone would have a more difficult course is younger age of onset. Um, I think the, the sort of papers on this talk about younger age, less than 40, but in practice, I feel like it's sort of younger, younger. So if you're diagnosed as a teenager or certainly as a, as a younger kid, you're going to have a more difficult course. Um, patients that require steroids early on in their care, patients that require um, uh, hospitalization early on, um, and uh, patients that are complicated with C. diff. So people who have C. diff as part of their disease process uh, generally do worse. Maybe we should move on to the treatment because we do yeah. s- still want to ma- save some time for Crohn's here as well. Sure. And it's it probably beyond the scope of, of this episode to talk about the nitty gritty of your, your treatment approach. But can you mind just sort of discussing broadly what, what can be done to induce remission and then what kind of therapies are used to maintain remission once that's occurred? Yeah, sure. So I, I think the, the first step is to figure out, is this patient having mild to moderate disease, moderate to severe disease? And, uh, and that'll help us decide um, for many ulcerative colitis patients, uh, certainly in the mild to moderate realm, um, and, and obviously that determination has a, a bunch of caveats in how we figure that out, but um, we're thinking about uh, five aminosalicylate products. So the things that you may have seen you know, way back when, sulfasalazine is the drug that fits that mold, um, but more modern medicines are mesalamine products. And there are a number of brand names uh, that that fall into that category. Lialda, Aprizo, um, uh, let's see, uh, Asacol, uh, Delzacol, trying to think of the other ones. Um, they all more or less work the same way uh, as far as effectiveness. The differences are sort of how they're released in the pill formulations. Um, but those are oral medications. And then you have uh, rectal topical therapies um, like canasa, which is a mesalamine that's in a suppository form, and rawasa, which is mesalamine in an enema form that uh, can be directed if you have really distal disease. Um, we know that combination of those things, the oral and rectal, tends to work better than either one individually. Most people don't like to give themselves enemas and suppositories if they can avoid it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes so I'll, uh, I'll sort of bargain with someone and say, do, do the combo for a few weeks, try to get you feeling a little bit better, and then maybe we can sort of taper off the rectal therapy and, and maintain you on oral. Um, uh, 
that's sort of mild to moderate uh, patients. When you're talking about more significant disease, steroids are an option. We always hate to put people on steroids, but sometimes it's necessary. We want to get someone off as quickly as we can. Um, and then we're thinking about medicines that fall into the realm of biologic um, or immunomodulators. And um, those are medicines you've all seen commercials on for TV. So uh, infliximab, Remicade, uh, adalimumab, Humira, mm -hmm. Uh, Symphony, which is golimumab, and then there are uh, a few new ones. So uh, vetalizumab or Intivio, uh, they have a commercial that says it's the only drug designed specifically for inflammatory bowel disease. Well, I don't really care if it works. It doesn't matter where it was designed for, but whatever. Uh, and, uh, and the newest thing, which was approved last year, is a medicine called Zeljans or tofacitinib, which is a JAK inhibitor. It's the first oral um, sort of significant immunosuppressing yeah. drug that was approved for um, uh, RA for a few years. Yeah, I was about to ask you about the oral one. You answered it. You read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> With steroids, that one of my main questions about the therapy, I think it may, maybe it's a little bit different for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, but do do patients end up being on long term? Stero oral steroids in, in uh, ulcerative colitis? They can. Um, you know, I think we'll talk a little bit in Crohn's about sort of step up versus top down types of uh, therapies and sort of how we think about how, how we get people in remission. The steroids work. They make you feel better um, and, they, uh, and they can improve your symptoms. We know they have all of the, the side effects. And so uh, sometimes you use steroids for a few weeks or even a few months uh, just to try to get them back onto 5 salicylate compounds. If a patient has been on multiple courses of steroids, I'm far less likely to put them on another course of steroids and, and I'm more likely to go on to a biologic. But if they need steroids one time, this is the first time they need it, I have no problem doing that, trying to get them off. And then preventing a need for, you know, a long-term biologic therapy that has some additional side effects and obviously expensive costs and infusions and all sorts of things like that. Okay. I wanted to ask about the logistics of the, you mentioned the topical medicines. Do this, those come in suppositories and enemas or in like, how, how do you, in, I'm just out of, just out of curiosity, like how long do they have to like hold those and all that sort of thing? If we're thinking about mesalamine or 5-ASA products, uh, there are only two, and they are there are no generic ones available. So oftentimes that's an insurance problem. Uh, but there is an enema called Rawasa, and you can get sort of more coverage of the distal colon if you're using an enema. You have someone generally at night lie on their side. Uh, Put the enema in and hopefully hold on to it for as long as possible. Um, we're talking about you know 15 to 30 minutes if they can. Um, one of the problems we have in IBD is if they have a lot of rectal inflammation, they just can't hold on to it. Um, you know, it, it sort of dribbles out. They get that urgency um, and they and they can't hold it. So for those patients, um, Canassa suppositories, um, which is the brand name version of the of the suppository uh, uh, is is a little bit easier to hold on to because it's more solid. Um, and that only gets you about maybe 10 to maybe 15 centimeters worth of of uh, colon coverage, uh, but better than nothing. There are also some formulations of steroid, uh, uh, foam, 
and um, that you can use as well as a, a form of budesonide. And we haven't mentioned budesonide, but budesonide is a um, high first-pass metabolism steroid uh, and theoretically has some benefits as far as steroids-bearing effects uh, that has both an oral and a rectal foam form that we could think about to try to avoid the systemic uh, steroid side effects. So you mean like they take it, whatever does get absorbed, just gets kind of knocked out by the liver before it really enters the systemic circulation. Yeah, exactly right. So so it has, I don't quote me on this, but something like 90% first pass metabolism. So uh, everything that gets absorbed, you know, you're only getting sort of 10% of the systemic side effects. You can still get all the complications. So if you're on budesonide for years, you're going to get, you know, moon faces and glucose intolerance and osteoporosis and all that stuff. But, um, you know, for shorter term periods of time, it's probably safer. I also think it's probably a little bit less effective than prednisone. And so for more severe cases or patients that fail budesonide, you can move to things like prednisone. All right. Well, let's, let's move to our second case. And this is Mr. Burt Russell. And again, I'm left to wonder how I picked these names when I wrote this. <laughs> this is a, a 28-year-old male who's presenting to your office with reports of a crampy abdominal pain and diarrhea that's been going on for a couple of months. He is also reporting symptoms of fatigue and weight loss, and he, he notes a painful rash in his bilateral shins. He does not think that he's seen any blood in his stool. Um, he denies any other health problems. This, again, is a patient who's similarly healthy, no alcohol use, uh, no illicit drug use. He does report that he smokes approximately a pack of cigarettes per day and has since the age of 18. Um, no recent travel history at all, no recent antibiotics, and he's not started eating anything new or unusual. Uh, and his family history is only noteworthy for high blood pressure in his dad. So um, we're going to ask you at this point to compare and contrast a little bit to our first patient who is coming in more with um, blood in the stool, um, but not so much cramping. This seems more like a cramping and, and diarrheal complaint. So how would your approach differ for this patient, or would it? Yeah, so again, we're, we're talking about a young uh, previously healthy person. So it sort of limits the things that we're thinking about. Um, you know, we're not concerned about colon cancer and things like that. Um, and for me, the sort of more Crohn's-ish feel is the lack of blood. Crohn's disease can affect anywhere in the GI tract. So uh, commonly affects the small bowel. Uh, and so you can get uh, a, a diarrhea without blood oftentimes also more associated with some crampy pain. Um, and the, the sort of the concerning thing, you know, might, you, you might otherwise think about this guy's got IBS, diarrhea predominant, um, but he's got weight loss. Uh, weight loss is always concerning. And he has this uh, rash on the shins, which we spoke earlier about is likely uh, erythema nodosum. Um, he smokes and contrary to ulcerative colitis, uh, Crohn's disease is definitely worse with people who smoke. Um, there are many, many studies that basically all aspects of Crohn's disease is, is worse, uh, if you're a smoker. And I often tell patients that, you know, you didn't do anything to develop IBD. You didn't, you know, it's nothing that you ate. It's nothing that you did. Um, and you can't control a lot of this the one thing you have control over is whether you smoke or not. And uh, stopping smoking will absolutely be helpful for him for his what is presumed Crohn's disease. So it sounds like the differential diagnosis is is pretty similar here to to what we talked about for ulcerative colitis, so other other types of infectious other types of infectious causes or other types of inflammatory bowel disease. Maybe they're they have this indeterminate colitis 
uh, overlap. Yeah, and 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 I would think in this guy a little bit more about irritable bowel, functional bowel disease, and I, and I of course I mentioned just. Uh, a minute ago that, you know, the weight loss and things are concerning. But if this guy is a sort of high strung guy, he has anxiety, maybe some depression, he's not eating as much for those reasons, and he's got some crampy pain and diarrhea, it's maybe irritable bowel. Um, and, uh, and we have to exclude, obviously, things like Crohn's. Would you still do the same serologic test? Would you still be doing right. CRP and ESR and, and the, the initial stool studies? Yeah. Yeah, so so CRP is less commonly elevated in Crohn's disease than it is in ulcerative colitis. Similarly, fecal calprotectin is uh, more often positive when you have colonic involvement. Um, so if this guy has purely small bowel Crohn's, you might not get as much of a elevated fecal calprotectin. So they may be less useful, but if they're positive, they are useful. So, th- so this specific patient, we go ahead and send him over to... Uh, GI, so and they do some initial endoscopy. He's got some rectal sparing, ileal inflammation, skip lesions, and cobblestoning. The histology reveal, reveals some inflammatory infiltrates with crypt irregularity. Um, what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, what does what a typical endoscopic and histologic features of Crohn's disease even look like? So you obviously were taking this case directly from a textbook. Because <laughs> I think so. I think so. Almost exactly what you would see uh, in Crohn's uh, if, you, if you're you know, picking a textbook case. So, so rectal sparing, right? Unlike colitis, which has uh, rectal involvement, um, ileal in- involvement, which you don't necessarily have to have, but you do in this case, um, skip lesions. So areas of sort of normal mucosa intervening with areas of ulceration and inflammation, and cobblestoning, which sort of just looks like a cobblestone street in Philly, where uh, you get um, sort of over time chronic inflammation has caused this sort of lumpy, bumpy uh, areas of the GI tract. Um, the biopsies, uh, I assume crypt irregularity is uh, sort of a pseudonym for uh, architectural distortion, where yeah. you don't have those sort of normal test tube-shaped uh, glands, and you have sort of branching and dropout of certain glands, um, which would be diagnostic of IBD. And uh, just a little trivia, the second author on... So the, the original paper was Regional Ileitis, a Pathology and Clinical Entity, is written by Dr. Crone. The second author, and this is just some weird trivia that I know, it was Dr. Ginsburg, which I thought was hilarious because of what we were talking about before we started the show. <laughs> the pick of the week. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so do you know how they got those names on the paper? What order? Uh, no, I don't, actually. Is it because it was alphabetical? Or? Alphabetical order. Okay, there you go. He was also the only GI doctor. The other two were surgeons. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and I trained at Mount Sinai where Dr. Crone was a physician. So uh, <laughs> uh, we, heard, we heard a lot about Crohn's disease up there. <laughs> That's great trivia. I like that. We should we should do more trivia on the show, Stuart. Sure, man. I can do that. I'm like the trivia person. I know a lot of useless knowledge. <laughs> That's why I'm a doctor. All right. Let's let's get into what are some of the extra intestinal manifestations with Crohn's? And how do they differ from UC? Yeah, I mean, they're largely similar. Um, you know, you get the skin, eye, and um joint involvements. Um, there are some minor differences about, you know, um, enodosa might be more common in Crohn's disease and, and, um, uh, pyoderma might be more common in ulcerative colitis, but from a practical perspective, I don't think it really matters that much. You're going to get 
you, you have the ability to have all of those things in both of the entities. So maybe we should just talk about therapy because I, I do want to leave some time at the end to talk about some primary care specific stuff. There's there's these this mention of this top down versus step up therapy. Can you can you let us know what that means? Sure. So back in the day, and by that I mean like eight years ago, um, <laughs> uh, we when I started we treated, residency. Yeah, <laughs> we 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 treated all inflammatory bowel disease with step up therapy, and in concept that makes sense, right? You give them a fairly mild drug um, with minimal side effects. You hope it works. Um, and if it works, wonderful. If it doesn't work, you move to the next level of drug uh, to that has a little bit more side effects, but is sort of a little more powerful, and and hopefully that'll work. And eventually, you get up to the top of the pyramid where you're looking at sort of the the most aggressive therapies, saved for uh, the most aggressive disease. The problem is Crohn's disease is a long-term inflammatory disease that builds on itself. So the complications of Crohn's disease are related to the amount and longevity of the inflammation. So early on, you have inflammatory disease, um, and then later on, you get the complications of strictures, fistulas, abscesses, obstructions. Um, And so we learned that if you're more aggressive up front, you're actually altering the natural history of the Crohn's and you're preventing some of those long-term complications. So they came up with this term top-down where you're sort of flipping the pyramid upside down and you're starting with very aggressive agents, very uh, powerful agents. I think the down part is a misnomer because it's not like you start with a biologic therapy and then you end up with you know uh, an amino salicylate at the end. It's sort of top and stay there. Um, but, uh, but, uh, you know, probably more comp, more nitty gritty than we need for here. There are some times when we could, you know, sort of deescalate therapy, but in general, we want to start fairly aggressive, um, to try to reduce those long-term complications. And generally we stay at those aggressive medicines. I've seen some patients uh, in the hospital with a first presentation of Crohn's disease, and it seems like they're getting steroids, and then and then there's talk of do, do we give them a, like a TNF inhibitor uh, in the hospital, or do we wait a little while? How does that typically? How does that decision typically get made? Um, and and like what's a st- And maybe you could also comment on the dose of steroids that people are getting, and like how long it takes for them to taper down or taper off. Sure. So um, some of that is logistical. So patient is sick, you want to get them feeling better. So steroids are going to get people better pretty quickly. Um, There's been no great data that significantly high doses of steroids are any better. So generally, you're looking at 40 to 60 milligrams of prednisone, and I am usually not going above 40. I don't think there's a lot of difference between 40 and 60, and certainly not uh, higher doses. Um, uh, You're just going to get side effects and not any additional benefit. The, the time to taper off depends on how they're feeling and depends on what other therapies you decide to, to give. Um, but there are logistical issues with getting some of these biologics started. You have to check uh, hepatitis B and, and for tuberculosis. So now, you know, in today's world, we're using uh, um, quantiferon gold testing typically. Um, that might take a few days to come back. Um, and then you have to get insurance approval for these drugs because they're $40,000 a year. And mm-hmm. so 
even if we can give them a, uh, a dose in the hospital, if it's not set up to give the next dose once they get out, you're not doing them any favors. If anything, you might be hurting them by, uh, you know, sort of inducing the body to produce antibodies and and sort of losing drug effectiveness. So um, there are some of the pharmaceutical companies are pushing for you to have doses available in the hospital and it might be the right circumstance if we can get the right approvals for it, but it's not necessarily the right thing. Okay. So that's why that's, that explains why I'm seeing that. That's a peek beneath behind the curtain, as Paul likes to say. Yeah. Do, do those therapies work quickly? Like do the, do the biologic therapies actually work quickly? Like let's say someone's in there with a flare they're usually going to be getting steroids too, so it might be hard to tell. But do the biologic therapies have that quick of an onset? Like within a couple of days, it it starts to co- knock down the, the disease activity. Yes, definitely. So, so I think the best data we have is for infliximab, which was the first anti-TNF approved in 1998. Um, there have been since several other anti-TNF drugs as well as some other mechanisms, um, but we have the most data for for infliximab, and we know that you can get improvement within two three days. Um, the caveats to that are that if you have a lot of colonic disease, you can lose the drug in your stool. And where we used to give sort of a standard five milligrams per kilogram dose, uh, we now know that you might need to be more aggressive, give higher doses, um, because you're losing a lot of it, at least initially when you have a lot of inflammation. And as the inflammation gets better, you can potentially sort of dial down the dose a little bit. Um, The induction uh, for some of these drugs is sort of high doses or at least more frequent dosing early on, and then you space it out. So infliximab is a, is a dose at time zero after two weeks, after six weeks, and then every eight weeks thereafter. So um, you, if you get that first dose uh, in the hospital, their next dose is due in two weeks. And if you can't get the insurance stuff figured out or the infusion center figured out before that, then um, you potentially have a problem. So I've got a very general question about biologic therapy in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis for that matter, I suppose. Although ulcerative colitis is more surgical treatment long term. But um, say for Crohn's disease, what are we actually, what clinical endpoints have we shown to be effective in the initiation and in the age of the biologic therapy? Is it mortality, morbidity? What is it exactly that long term treatment has shown to improve? Yeah, so I think it's a, a really good point. Most of the drug trials done for inflammatory bowel disease at most look at 52-week endpoints. Right. And we're dealing with diseases that are, you know, you know, lifelong. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's great if I can get you better for a year, but then what happens after that? And, and you know, that's one of the reasons uh, infliximab uh, is uh, is a good choice because we have 20, about about 20 years worth of data for infliximab. Um, so people who got it starting in, you know, in the year 2000, we've at least have some experience with some longer term outcomes. Um, in general, what we're looking at in 2019 is what we call endoscopic healing. And that's looking visually at the mucosa and we, it looks normal. Um, so obviously you want their symptoms to get better. So clinical mm-hmm. response, clinical remission uh, based on diarrhea, pain, bleeding, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, but we know that a lot of people can get clinical improvement and still have a lot of inflammatory right. burden on the inside. And we know that, uh, especially in Crohn's where you have these long-term risks of strictures and fistulas, et cetera, 
if you're feeling better, but you've got a lot of inflammation inside, you're still at risk for those things. Right. So, so it's now sort of a combined endpoint of clinical remission and endoscopic remission um, is the target. We can't achieve that in a vast majority of patients, but that's the, that's the goal. Uh, we do not yet have data or good data to say that histologic remission is a target. Logic would dictate that it would be. Um, that if you take biopsies, you don't know the person has Crohn's disease if you're, you're looking under a microscope. Um, but I, uh, I don't think we have any sort of long-term data to suggest that that should be a target at this point. Okay. We didn't really talk about az- azathioprine or methotrexate. And uh, mm-hmm. like from what I was reading, so so Adam, from what I was reading, a lot of people will get started on steroids and then some sort of staring, steroid sparing agent add, added on like azathioprine or 6-mercaptorpurine. I'm sure I'm butchering the name there. Or 6-MP. Um, yeah, 6-MP. Thank you, Stuart. Or, hey, you're welcome. Or methotrexate. Are, are those still being used or is it is it mostly moved now to steroids and a biologic and then you try to kind of get people off the steroids in the long term? So I think those drugs you mentioned, the azathioprine, um, the 6-mercaptopurine and methotrexate, which we would call immunomodulators, um, are used mostly as adjunctive therapy in, in this day and age. Um, there are not a lot of people that are going to start someone on azathioprine monotherapy um, because we have so much sort of more effective drugs in the biologics. Um, I was at a recent talk uh, with Ed Loftus, former Temple uh, internal medicine resident, uh, now a uh, big IBD expert at Mayo Clinic, who says that he has some patients like that, but those patients are ones that came to him already on the drug or have been on it for 20 years. You know, if you're doing great on azathioprine since 1997, no reason to change anything. But if you got a new patient, um, you're really not doing that. Um, the role of those drugs uh, is in a synergistic effect uh, with the biologics, and probably the most effective, so the most, uh, let me see how I want to say this, probably the most important way that these medicines work is that they help raise the drug level of the biologic. So if your drug level is lower uh, for infliximab, it might increase the level and therefore make it more effective, and it also helps prevent antibodies. So if you remember, the, uh, most of these biologic therapies are uh, monoclonal antibodies that your body can respond to by developing neutralizing antibodies, um, one of the reasons that people lose effectiveness uh, for some of these drugs. And so the immunomodulators tend to reduce the immunogenicity of the biologics and therefore make them more effective. Are you seeing patients in the long term getting pulled off drug uh, off these drugs or does the infliximab, let's say they're using infliximab, does that just get spaced out further and further? Or is there, can patients ever come off these drugs? Like once someone has their first Crohn's flare, they're they're on steroids and infliximab, are they ever coming off either of those agents? So we want them off of steroids, right? So in most cases, we can get people off of steroids. Um, I have a few people that I inherited that are on like five of prednisone and they have been for years and I try to get them off and they don't want to get off. And so I, you know, fight with them about osteoporosis and then I just refill their prescription. Uh, but the, there's pretty good evidence that patients who completely come off of drugs are going to flare 
And the concern, especially if they've been hard to control to begin with, is getting them back under control. The drug that you take them off of might no longer be effective and you have to put them on something else. And, you know, up until three or four years ago, we really only had two or three biologic drugs. We now have a few more, so at least there's a little more choices. Um, but you have to be very careful. If you're going to take someone off of a drug and they're on combination therapy, if they're on immunomodulator and a biologic, absolutely the drug you take off is the immunomodulator. You keep the biologic on. And you want to be sure that the patient is in endoscopic remission. So if someone, and I've had these conversations with folks because immunomodulators have some side effects that we haven't talked about, but if we want to take someone off, I scope them. I make sure their biomarkers like fecal calprotectin or CRP are normal. And hopefully they have endoscopic healing. And I can say, you know, let's take you off of, you know, your azathioprine, for example, and just maintain you on your adalimumab or, or whatever, uh, you know, anti-TNF of choice. Which I, I guess leads to the discussion of, of prognosis with these particular patients. So similar to the UC patient, what does your initial conversation look like once the diagnosis has been made? What do you tell them what they might expect and how this disease may progress? Yeah, so so back in the day, in the pre-biologic era, so I guess before 1998, um, I think the, the statistics are something along the lines of you could expect to require surgery for Crohn's disease once every seven years or something like that. Um, we're only starting to get some of the population data uh, of people who have been on biologics for long periods of time. Uh, so I don't have sort of great numbers to point to, but certainly the sort of general feeling is that your risks of surgery and risks of significant complications have gone down significantly with these drugs. Um, you'll look at some of the studies that come out and they say there doesn't seem to be much of an effect, but um, I think the they, there are a bunch of biases in those studies and, and you know, there may be at referral centers where you're seeing the worst of the worst patients. Um, but as a general rule, these patients are doing a lot better in 2019 than they were in, you know, 1989. Um, uh, the risks uh, in the long term are obstruction, abscess, uh, stricture, fistula formation, all driven by inflammation. So, the key with everything here is getting their inflammation under control by whatever means necessary. Um, you know, sometimes people are on higher doses than are, you know, FDA approved because it, that's what works for them. Um, but that's the, that's the long-term goal. I think we should talk about some of the primary care uh, related issues, Paul. Did you want to bring us into that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, I, I think as helpful as the stuff is to talk about and to know about, I mean, realistically, probably much of the management of this is going to be done by our, our friendly neighborhood gastroenterologist, IEU. Um, but in terms of specific primary care considerations, I guess there's there's a couple of specific points that that you wanted us to be mindful of. Um, I think I'd probably like, you touched on this a little bit earlier, I'd like to talk about um, the risk of colorectal cancer and inflammatory bowel disease and how that impacts surveillance endoscopy. Sure. So, uh, colon cancer in IBD, obviously you're at risk for your run-of-the-mill sporadic colon cancer, just like we all are, um, but there is a colitis-associated colon cancer that is a different uh, mechanism as far as genetic mutations and is something that we think, again, is inflammation-driven. So the 
people who have very small amounts of their colon affected, so someone who has ulcerative proctitis, just the rectum, those patients don't have increased risk of colon cancer compared to the general population. Um, so uh, that's true for uh, people that just have the rectum and sigmoid involved as well. So people who uh, we want to be more aggressive in screening are patients that have more than a third of their colon affected. So in the setting of ulcerative colitis, we're talking about people that have more than just proctosigmoiditis. So if they have the descending colon or pancolitis affected. And in, in Crohn's disease, sort of approximately a third of their colon uh, or more. And, and you should have, uh, your GI doctor should be doing sort of random biopsies of the colon during your colonoscopy, even if it looks normal, because if you have microscopic disease, evidence of crypt distortion, uh, even if the things look micro, uh, endoscopically normal, those patients do have that increased risk. So we start screening people uh, eight years after their initial symptoms, okay. uh, not necessarily their diagnosis, because sometimes people go a few years before they get a real diagnosis, and we know that's the inflammation wasn't was there even if you didn't have a formal diagnosis um and then at that point uh gi guidelines in the u.s recommend every one to two year colonoscopies um some of the european societies are a little less stringent about that and there's some recent data uh that was presented at our last gi meeting that suggested that that's a re that that could be a reasonable approach especially in someone who's had you know a few normal colonoscopies that you might be able to space out the intervals. Um, but the guidelines at this moment don't, uh, don't suggest that. Yeah. I mean, cause if you're like 38 years old and your life expectancy is near normal, then that's like, you have like 20 more colonoscopies in your life. That's, it's not great. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. That's a pain in the butt. My brother has, uh, has taken the moving his TV into the bathroom and watching football <laughs> while he's prepping for his colonoscopy. So. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to ask are there any lifestyle changes that people with uh IBD can do certain diets they can follow is there anything they can do to kind of aid the therapy that they're that we've talked about a lot of medications but anything else they can do on their own Yeah I I wish I could tell you that there was a diet that works for inflammatory bowel disease. Probably that is probably the most common question that I get uh, from patients because obviously it's something that they have a measure of control over. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I do not have good data for any of for, for any of those things. Um, uh, you had uh, you had asked uh, or, or something I saw earlier was a question about lactose intolerance. That mm -hmm. Patients do sometimes have an inability to di uh, digest lactose. It may be because you got a lot of inflammation in the mucosal lining of the small bowel that's affecting uh, your ability to digest lactose. So lactose-free uh, diets might be helpful from a yeah. symptom perspective. It's not going to change the inflammatory pattern. Um, I have no great data on pre uh, probiotics and 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 things like that. Um, you know, we don't really know much about diet or the microbiome, uh, which has a, a big role here and we haven't really touched on. And, and, you know, logically we would think that things that you eat are going to change aspects of the bacteria in your GI tract, and that may affect the, the sort of inflammatory processes, but we are way too early to make sort of concrete recommendations about how to help that. You know, it's it's interesting. My wife has Crohn's disease, and when she was first diagnosed with it, 
um, we went out to eat. This is, I don't know, like 15, 16 years ago. And um, she had a double serving of broccoli. And it come to find out every time she's had broccoli since then, she'll have a really bad flare and she'll be in the hospital for two to three days. And specifically broccoli. And uh, I, I I know for her, it, it seems to have an association. So um, I'm not sure if there's specifically foods that maybe someone might might have developed a, a sensitivity to, be, maybe as a result of a flare in the past or something like that. I don't know. But uh, I know for her, it certainly has. Yeah. So, you know, broccoli sort of fits in that group of fibrousy vegetables that I would tell people to avoid if they have Crohn's disease. That's sort right. of a, the one more concrete recommendation I can make, especially, <laughs> you know, especially if you have areas of narrowing or stricture, these right. are difficult things to digest and they can get stuck. Uh, you know, I mean, not that you're causing a full obstruction, but, yeah. uh, it's just, they're just things that are hard to digest. You want to make things a little bit easier for yourself. Um, but my general recommendation to patients are just like patients that don't have IBD, uh, people have food sensitivities, certain right. things make them feel crappy. And so, you know, a little bit of trial and error, you know, if you have a terrible flare after eating something, maybe you want to avoid that for a little bit and, you know, reintroduce it a little bit slowly and see if that happens to be a particular trigger for you. I have a, a really good friend with ulcerative colitis who, before she got pregnant, could never eat lettuce, couldn't have salads because she got some of these same symptoms that you were describing. and after she was pregnant, she can now eat salads, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I, and I have no good explanation for that, but, um, you know, maybe something hormonal, maybe something changed in there in her, uh, uh, physiology of her disease, but she can tolerate it now and she couldn't before. So, um, uh, diet is just something we don't have a great grasp on. And so you're, uh, you're recommending pregnancy is what I'm hearing right? <laughs> for men um, and women. Well, I actually, you know, interestingly, there are definitely patients with IBD who feel a lot better while they're pregnant. Um, yeah, that, was they my, have that was my wife. Um, and, you know, I, I practice at Mount Sinai where there are uh, a lot of uh, Orthodox Jews, and that also means a lot of IBD. So they would want to be pregnant because they, you know, they felt so good while they were pregnant. And, you know, maybe mm -hmm. they were inclined to have nine or 10 kids anyway, but this, uh, certainly was a, a good way to go through those 10 years. Um, again, I'm not advocating you get pregnant if you have inflammatory bowel disease, but, uh, you might feel better. <laughs> yeah. I think we should, we should start to wrap up here. Maybe you can talk about immunizations cause that's a big one. Uh, and you probably can list them off, but what, any specifics that we need to think about outside the ordinary for primary care? Um, yeah, so patients that are uh, immunosuppressed and, and all the biologic therapies and immunomodulators we spoke about um, make you, you know, sort of relatively immunosuppressed, um, puts you into that category. If you look on, on the CDC guidelines for immunizations, you're not sort of an average patient, you're an immunosuppressed patient. And uh, you have to be careful of certain live virus vaccines. So um, MMR, uh, the old uh, herpes zoster vaccine, which is being phased out now, um, now that there's a, a non-live virus, the uh, flu mist, which I don't even think you can get anymore. Um, mm. But that was something we had to think about. Um, that was for horrible too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, for babies, uh, uh, rotavirus vaccine is a live virus vaccine. So 
not that the babies have inflammatory bowel disease, <laughs> but, if, but if the mom has inflammatory bowel disease and was on a biologic right. for the first six months of life, we recommend not giving live virus vaccines, and that practically means rotavirus. Um, I feel like there's one. Of, oh, um, uh, varicella. Varicella is also a live virus vaccine. So in an ideal world, in, in this day and age, patients will have received many of these vaccines before you get to them. Um, but, uh, you know, you should be checking. Um, I mentioned hepatitis B, people who ha can have reactivation of hepatitis B if they're on some of these biologics. And so you want to check and make sure they don't have it. Obviously, if they're not vaccinated, you can recommend vaccination um, because it's a non-live virus. Although most, you know, 20-something-year-olds that get I new IBD today have had uh, the vaccination that they needed as a child. Um, those are the major ones. The one thing, the only other additional thing I'll say is we mentioned um, uh, tofacitinib as a new drug uh, option for ulcerative colitis. And there's been some association with increased rates of zoster, uh, not severe zoster and shouldn't be necessarily a reason to not uh, treat someone with that drug. But uh, if you're able to get the non-live uh, zoster vaccine before starting tofacitinib, it would probably be a good idea. Problem is insurance only covers it. It's only recommended for age 50 and over. And so if you have a 25-year-old that you want to put on this drug and you want to give them that vaccine, they may be paying out of pocket for it. And I just, just looked that up. It looks like there's an ongoing trial specifically looking at that. Interesting. With uh, tofacitinib. Any last questions from you, Paul? I think the two other things I want to touch on at least briefly is uh, bone health and IBD. I know that the use of chronic steroids is its own concern. Uh, are there any other, um, does IBD place at risk for osteopenia or osteoporosis in, in other ways that we should be mindful of? Um, you know, I think, especially in young kids, uh, people who have IBD are not going to be growing as well as they might otherwise be growing and, and falling off the growth curve, uh, is a common problem. So they're not absorbing, um, vitamin D as well. And, uh, and you have to be careful with that. But I think the major risk factor is chronic steroid use. And okay. so people who are on chronic steroids should be getting calcium and vitamin D. They should get DEXA scans and they should be treated for osteoporosis aggressively, um, just like you would someone else. Obviously you're thinking about it in a 30 year old when you might not otherwise thinking about it. Um, but I make sure that my folks have had, uh, DEXA scans, and the other question I had, I guess, sort of common nutritional deficiencies, like how, how often should we be doing things like checking iron stores or should we be doing folate and B12 levels? And is there utility in that kind of routine screening? No folate. Yeah. So folate is not really necessary. Um, iron, many, many, many IBD patients are iron deficient. There are sort of four major reasons for iron deficiency in some of these patients. Uh, number one, they're losing blood potentially in rectal bleeding. Mm -hmm. Number two, they're not eating as much. Uh, because they feel crappy. Uh, number three, if you have Crohn's with duodenal involvement, you might not be absorbing iron as much. Uh, that's not overly common, but that's a possibility. But the major reason is a pro-inflammatory state uh, reduces mm -hmm. the, um, the ability to absorb iron. Uh, and so a lot of these people will need to get IV iron infusions. They can't absorb even if you're giving them iron supplements. Um, so I'm checking that routinely. 
Uh, B12 is something who has, if someone who has uh, small bowel and ileal Crohn's disease, uh, they might not be able to absorb B12 because it's absorbed in the TI, uh, as well as people that have had ileal resections. So if you've had surgery to remove that part of the uh, bowel, uh, these people often need to be on B12 supplements. Is it is it sufficient to check one fat soluble vi- vitamin as a surrogate for the rest of them? So instead of checking like vitamin A, E, and say coags for vitamin K, just check a vitamin D for these patients. So I, we, I don't usually think of uh, the fat soluble vitamins as being deficient in inflammatory okay. bowel disease. Um, vitamin D is uh, sort of a, an exception because of steroid use and things like that. But uh-huh. um, I'm not aware of you know. You know, people that have elevated INRs because they have, you know, low vitamin K. Well, as Stuart's Googling that, Adam, I want to. No, no, no. I'm using mesh. Using mesh. I want to thank you for your time. And why don't you give us some take home points? And then I'll give you a chance if you have anything you'd like to plug. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think for the primary care provider, the important things to think about are number one, who are the patients who are concerned about having inflammatory bowel disease? In general, they're younger folks, um, although you can get it uh, older, um, and people that have unexplained bleeding, sort of urgency, diarrhea, that you probably are sending to the GI doc anyway, uh, if they have sort of more long-term symptoms. Uh, But those are folks you want to think about with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. And then, you know, at the end, we spoke some about the um, the sort of primary care health maintenance things, and I want to stress the importance of vaccinations, DEXA scans. We didn't talk about uh, cancer screening besides colon cancer, but uh, patients that are immunosuppressed have increased risk of cervical cancer, and people should be getting uh, annual uh, GYN exams. And they're also at increased risk of certain skin cancers, um, squamous and basal cell cancers, and so should be getting annual derm exams. Me, as someone who sees patients like this all the time, is are, are making those referrals, but uh, uh, PCPs can certainly help with that. Um, and then the last thing uh, is sort of lifestyle stuff. So we talked about smoking at length. Smoking is bad for Crohn's disease for sure. Smoking may be beneficial in ulcerative colitis, but we still don't recommend it. Um, And then lastly, we didn't uh, touch on at all, uh, things like depression. Uh, These folks are generally young, otherwise healthy people that have potentially debilitating um, GI diseases and, you know, they can't go out with their friends and they, you know, think about, you know, trying to date someone while you're running to the bathroom, you know, every 20 minutes or, you know, you you have surgery and you have an ostomy uh, and, you know, thinking about, um, uh, um, you know, sex and things like that, uh, can be really challenging. And, and I think it's something that we as GIs often overlook, um, and certainly would appreciate, uh, the help from the primary care docs to think about, uh, those sort of, um, uh, you know, other behavioral health type things. Great. I think that's a good spot to end. Did you have anything that you wanted to plug? I think that uh, certainly for patients, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, which is a a national organization uh, dedicated to both research and cure for IBD as well as patient support, is an absolutely amazing uh, organization. And, you know, I refer all of my patients to the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. They have support groups, information. They give you information about dealing with insurance companies when you're dealing with drugs, uh, you know, getting drug approvals and and lab tests and things like that, and uh, often have a lot of 
resources for you know patients to talk to other patients that have similar problems. Um, you know, every city has a chapter. I'm involved in the um, the medical advisory board here in Philadelphia, um, and we have patient education days and things like that. So I think that would be um, something you should definitely sort of recommend to your patients um, if they have IBD. Thank you so much, Adam. So just wanted to give you the results of what I found here. So I, 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 did, as, I did about five different mesh database <laughs> searches while we're talking. Um, I only found one article, and this is from 2017, the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology. This is a meta-analysis looking at 19 case control studies for patients with Crohn's disease. Um, found that the longer the patients had disease, the lower their levels of fat-soluble vitamins. But uh, I, I don't know how how uh, powerful the study was. I'll have to go through and look at it more in detail. Good to know. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There it is. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Mine? (laughs) Thank you. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. Yes, you, Paul. You out there, Paul. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks goes out to our entire team. It's ridiculously large and includes such fantastic people such as Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've still been and always will be Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. <laughs> And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, and goodbye. Can we, can we call this one Adam, Ru- Adam Ruins IBD? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>